You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Mark Stout, the museum's historian. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers, coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. Why don't we get started? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Um, my name is Mark Stout. I'm the historian here at the International Spy Museum. I'm, I'm delighted to see all of you here, and clearly we've got a, a devoted audience uh, because nobody who wasn't uh, completely uh, devoted would leave the, uh, the bubble of air conditioning and venture outside to come anywhere to do anything today. So thank you doubly for, for coming to the International Spy Museum today. Uh, we are uh, very fortunate today to have with us uh, Joby Warwick to speak about his new book, Triple Agent. Uh, Joby has worked for the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, the UPI in Vienna, uh, a key listening post for covering the collapse of the communist regimes in Eastern Europe back in the day. Uh, he's also worked at the uh, News and Observer in Raleigh, Carolina, North Carolina, where he shared a Pulitzer Prize for a series of articles on the political and environmental uh, effects of factory farming in the Southeast. Joby came to the Washington Post, where he is now, in 1996, um, worked in the Post investigative unit, uh, where he specialized in covering issues of WMD proliferation and weapons trafficking, and did important works on radioactive, radioactive hazards uh, in Kentucky at the, at the uranium processing plant there. He now covers intelligence for the Post, and Triple Agent is uh, in part the result of that work. It's his first book, as I understand it. Uh, I read an advanced copy of this book. It's, it's a terrific read, and I think really represents some excellent research and reporting. It really gets behind the scenes and illuminates many of the really sticky operational aspects of the intelligence fight against al-Qaeda and its allies. And it also illuminates some of the risks that have to be taken and compromises that have to be made in the real world of espionage. Um, on the other hand, it pretty well makes clear, at least in my reading, where some pretty serious mistakes were made. In fact, I've got to warn you that this book will probably make your blood boil. It'll make you want to scream. Um, and in fact, more than anything, this book really reminded me of a Greek tragedy. The protagonists have their fatal flaws, and you know the story is going to end in literally a bloody catastrophe, and you're dragged along inexorably step-by-step step with the protagonists towards the gruesome end. I recommend the book to all of you. I'm very excited to hear Joby talk about it. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Joby Warwick. Well, thanks, and I have to, sure, mine too. 
And really, thanks again for coming out on the middle of the day and the hottest day of the, the year. It's just, uh, although Mark informs me, this is always a cool place to be. So you're welcome to the Spy Museum. Uh, the book has been out for about 24 hours now, so I, I'm sure that some of you haven't read all the way through it yet. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to um, actually just tell you a, kind of a brief overview of the story, just to make you familiar and hopefully just whet your appetite a little bit about what this is about. And I know that a lot of you will instantly recognize the outlines of this story because it was something that was in the news about 18 months ago. This is fairly recent history for all of us. Um, something that happened during the week between Christmas and New Year's of 2009. And a lot of us remember that time because the country was fixated at that moment about another terrorism incident, which was this bombing of attempted bombing of a plane over Detroit in, uh, it, by this famous underwear bomber, this guy. Through the, uh, I love the New York Post. They just, uh, they just such memorable headlines. But uh, so all of us, you know, reporters, government officials, all of us around town are, are dragged out from our Christmas celebrations into the office, working around the clock trying to figure this this thing out, and then in the middle of all of it, on the tw on the 30th December, things are starting to calm down for the for the New Year's. Something else happened, and I think most of you remember this event. The first bits of, of information that we got was that something had gone really bad at a CIA base in Afghanistan. This is one of these secret installations nobody really knows about, nobody ever goes to. We don't really know much of what they do, but there, something had gone terribly wrong. And immediately, I'm working on this story, and it's, it's intriguing. First of all, seven American operatives are killed. This is the worst single tragedy for the CIA since 1983, the Beirut bombing. So it's a very big deal. The details, when they start to come in, are startling. It's a suicide attack, which means inside a secure base, somebody had to at least compromise security. Somebody infiltrated this place. How, is this, how did this happen? Well, it turns out the guy was an informant. Well, that's interesting. A local informant attacks the CIA handlers. But no, it's not the usual informant. It's a foreign national, a Jordanian. This is this, the outside of the base where, uh, where he, he managed to penetrate. This is somebody who's been recruited and sent for thousands of miles by somebody. And he's somebody who's so important that he's not searched. He's wearing 30 pounds of explosives on his chest, but he manages to pass through one security checkpoint after another, then a third and he never gets patted down. He is escorted into the most secure part of the base where he's surrounded by 16 intelligence operatives, trained professionals, before he detonates his weapon. So from a reporter's point of view, this is a hell of a story, and just trying to unravel the pieces was something we spent many weeks working on. This is essentially also where the newspaper story ended and where my quest began. And it began really concentrating on this man, Humam al-Balawi, and figuring out why he was so important that he merited this special kind of treatment that he received. How was he able to fool the most sophisticated intelligence agency in the world? And I spent more than a year looking into this story, and I traveled to Afghanistan, to this base that we just saw. I traveled to Jordan, and spent time with the bomber's family, with his relatives, with the Jordanian intelligence officers who first put this case together. Went to uh, Turkey, to where this man went to school, and where his, fam his wife's family was from, and where his children were raised. And I traveled all around the United States meeting with each of the, the, the loved ones of the people who were killed in this tragedy. I met with intelligence operatives and former operator, operatives here in Washington and around the country. And piece by piece, just like a, a mosaic that you put together, just learning a little bit from this one and a little from that one, put together a story which is, to this day, is highly classified and, and has really not been fully explained. 
And the, really, the, the heart of the quest was unraveling the mind of this man who's at the middle of the story. He's probably one of the most intriguing and improbable figures in the history of modern spycraft. Who is Humambalui? Well, first of all, he's very smart. This is no dumb guy living in a cave, you know, some guy getting a couple hundred bucks to, to kill himself with the promise of a reward in the afterlife. He's a doctor. He was top of his class in Amman, Jordan, when he was a kid. He's a son of a Palestinian immigrant family. He goes to school abroad to become a physician. He's normal by all outward appearances. He's a father. He's got two little children. He lives in a nice little house. He works in a Palestinian refugee clinic run by the United Nations. He treats mothers and children. This is what he does day after day, looking after the cares of stomach, stomach aches and migraines and whatever, pregnancy issues that, that uh, Palestinian refugees have. And he wants to study in America. He is also ideological, as it turns out, an angry young man. He's 31 years old at the time the story unfolds. That's a toy gun, fortunately, with his, with his youngest daughter, just clowning around, but, but in a sense, he didn't really clown around. This is a man who was angry to his core, and there were good reasons for it, if you look at it from his point of view. His family grew up, or his family's roots were, were in what is now Israel, where they, live, uh, where they used to live is now a big cotton field owned by an agricultural consortium, which they'll never see. Uh, when his father was a, was a child, they had to leave what was then Palestine, went to Jordan, settled there for a while, went to Kuwait, settled there for a while. Then after the first Gulf War and Kuwait is liberated, all the Palestinians and Jordanians that lived there were kicked out and sent back, to, you know, back into exile once again. So it's a family that essentially has a sense of being persecuted and maligned. So he's got this very angry family history. And he's also someone who's very active in sort of the, so the real consequences of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because he treats these people every day. And when there was so this Gaza incursion in 2008, which was a, a brief period of conflict between the Israeli forces and, and, and Gazan Hamas militants, uh, he was involved in, in treating these patients. And this, so this kind of thing that made his blood boil. Well, like, like a lot of angry young men... To these days, looking for an outlet, he's not going to do anything stupid, he's not going to do anything dangerous, so he blogs. He goes onto the internet at night, creates a secret identity for himself. He calls himself Abu Dajana Khorasani, which means essentially he's honoring a Muslim hero from the, from the 7th century, and Khorasani is the land of what is now um, Afghanistan. So he has this pseudonym, he's sitting in his, in his house, and he writes these virulent blogs, sort of attacking everybody that he doesn't like. He, doesn't like the Israelis. He's writing horrible things about them. He doesn't like the Americans for supporting the Israelis. So day after day, there's this diatribe. Well, it turns out he's pretty good at it. He's not just some guy ranting alone. People start to pick up on his writings, and they post him, then repost him. He becomes the moderator of one of the key Islamic websites. And he writes entertaining, entertaining in quotes, things like this. Because what, it was, is like, what he likes to do is repost so battlefield carnage whenever there's some horrible bombing of Americans killed in Iraq. He puts the, puts the video up and he says things like, go the, to the menu and pick out today's dish. Roasted Humvee with sauce of human remains. Exploded tank by an IED with no survivors. Or a pastry made of Americans' brains taken out by snipers' bullets. Very upsetting for us to read, for the thousands of people reading his blog every day. This was great. This was nobody had ever written like this guy had before. So he had a huge following. By some estimations, he may have been number four, number five in the entire jihadist blogosphere. Highly popular highly original, and nobody, nobody knew who he was. But somebody had to know, because this is someone who was inciting to violence. He was talking about committing acts of violence himself. So in late 2008, a serious effort is underway to try to discover the identity of this man. And isn't everyone surprised to discover that Abu Dujana, this sort of 
this sort of raging ideological pundit is actually this a nobody, a doctor working in obscurity in, in Jordan, known to no one, no history of trouble, just as the last guy you'd expect to be doing something like this. On the evening of January 19th, 2009, Balawi's life changes forever. 11 o'clock at night, secret police from Jordan storm into his house, pull him out of his bed, confiscate his computers, big angry upset scene in the house with wife and kids screaming and all kinds of commotion, drag him out to a car, blindfold him, and whisk him off to what is probably the most frightening place for any Jordanian, which is the headquarters of the Jordanian Intelligence Service. There's a nickname for this place, and it derives from decades of people being questioned there. They call it the fingernail factory. So for three days, Humam is in the clutches of this intelligence service. And yet, surprisingly to a lot of us that, that, that got onto the story, he's not tortured, because they don't have to. Balui is not a terrorist or a tough guy. He's just this little doctor, and he breaks in no time. He tells everything he knows, which really isn't much, but he becomes completely cooperative. Here are the people that I write for. Here are the connections that I know about. In three days, he's essentially drained dry of all the useful information that he has. So he's released. And so he goes home wallowing in shame about what he has done. He's more angry and bitter than ever. And the intelligence service is not finished with him. So in comes this man. He's a captain in the intelligence uh, agency in Jordan. His name is Ali bin Zaid. He also happens to be royalty. He's a cousin of the king of Jordan. And this man, bin Zaid, takes charge of the case. And it's his job to figure out, OK, we've got this doctor now. What good can he do for us? So this period of weeks uh, transpire in which the Jordanians are, are just probing. How useful is he? You know, he's, he's really, he has no intelligence background. He's not a spy, but he knows people. He's got connections in the internet world. He writes things. He has sort of entree into this world that we're interested in. And also, he's a doctor. And that's not a small asset. This is a, way, this is a guy who could potentially meet people. And so they, they take him out to dinner. They buy him groceries. They start to talk to him about money. And then one day, Bali just comes up during a conversation at dinner and says, you know what I could do for you? I could go to Fatah. Fatah is the federally administrated tribal area. It's the little bit of no man's land between Afghanistan and Pakistan. It's the home base of the Taliban. It's the last known hideout of Osama bin Laden. And it's presumed safe haven for most of al-Qaeda senior leaders. And it's one of the most lawless, forbidding places on earth. And Bali wants to go there. Which is odd because Bali, he's not a spy. He doesn't speak the language. He speaks Arabic and English, doesn't speak any Pashto, the local language. But he seems to be very interested in the kind of money he can make. They're talking about, you bring in the right people, you help us locate individuals for us to take out, you can potentially earn millions of dollars. It'll change your life, it'll change your family's life forever. So why would you send a guy like Bali from the agency's point of view? And at this point, the CIA is becoming very intrigued. They work very closely with the Jordanians, and they're looking all around the world for people who can go into these places and do work for them. Why is he of interest? Well, first of all, there's absolutely nothing to lose. You throw this guy at the problem, maybe he finds something, probably he does it, probably he gets killed. Maybe the Al-Qaeda thinks he's a spy and they, they cut his head off on the first day. Very likely to happen, but there's nothing to lose. The cost for the CIA was a plane ticket, a little bit of running around money, a fake visa, a few odds and ends, no uh, spy implements, no fancy phones or gadgets like you see downstairs here because they don't want anything found on him that could then lead back to an intelligence agency. So they let him go. 
Baloui's cover story is he's a doctor. He's going to go in the tribal area. He wants to perform jihad. He introduces himself with someone who's written as a well-known jihadist figure on the internet. Now he wants to serve, you know, serve Allah. He wants to do medical work in the tribal area. It's a serviceable story. So off he goes. March 2009, nine months before the, the bombing takes place, he disappears into the tribal area with a couple suitcases and his visa to this incredible mission. Well, Whose side is he really on? I don't want to spoil the plot by telling the whole story of how this unwinds, but there's a, the, the interesting part, sort of the, the, the core of trying to unravel the story is figuring out whose side this guy is really on. And there's good evidence at, at various points that he was on this side and then he flipped to this side, or was he just carefully playing both sides, as we'll see. In, in any case, the information that he's able to come up with over a period of a very few months is unlike anything the CIA has seen in the entire history of the war on terrorism. Um, I will give you just, just, a, just a flavor, but um, he learns, he essentially is able to communicate in the CIA's language. He gets some videotapes showing himself at important meetings with high-ranking CIA officials. He gets them uh, targeting information about drone strikes. Okay, you hit this target today. I was there, you killed this guy, you killed this guy, you didn't get this guy because he ran away. It was information that could be instantly corroborated. And so the CIA was testing him. What does he know? How good is he? Is he really where he says he is? Everything about the guy checked out. And then the coup, the thing that really shook everybody up, and I will just sort of mention this briefly because you, you, you have to see how it unfolds in the book. He tells them that he can land for them the most incredible target they could possibly think of outside of Osama bin Laden himself. The number two commander of Al-Qaeda, Ayman Zawahiri, who's now the leader of Al-Qaeda, said, I can get to him, and I have proof that I can get to him. The proof was incontrovertible. He clearly had access to the guy. And when this happened, when this news filters out to the CIA that they're within perhaps striking distance of the guy who planned 9-11, everyone's excited, all the way up to the White House. This was not just a CIA operation, but the NSC gets briefed. The president gets briefed twice that this meeting's going to take place. Well, is he believable or not? I mean, even the CIA, as excited as they are, of course they're, they're curious and a little bit skeptical. The people who handle him are skeptical. But the thing is, this is such a potentially important case. What can you do? You have to meet with him. So at all haste, a meeting was set up. And that sort of puts the things in motion for this fateful meeting that takes place on the 30th of December. There's some striking individuals that are involved, and I'll just share a couple of them. This young woman was barely 30 years old, and she was already one of the CIA's best targeters, and that's a very specialized job. It means that what you do, mostly back in Langley, but she was doing this in Afghanistan, is you have a list of people that the CIA wants to get, and your job is to get information from whatever sources the, the CIA has on tap, from wiretaps, from informants, from this guy, from that guy, and piece it all together and sort of build a dossier about him and then lead the CIA by the hand to the actual missile strike that takes place. She would find someone, she would piece together where he was likely to be, they'd get the surveillance set up, find the person, and she would be on the phone with the director of the CIA as the drone was circling overhead and then firing on this person. That's quite an accomplishment for a woman who's just 30. But she was there that day to meet Bali. This guy was there. His name is Darren Labonte. He's a former army, army ranger who possessed such an amazing assortment of talents that he rockets right through CIA's training school and becomes kind of a double major. He's both a paramilitary officer who has all the lethal training, the lethal skills that you need in the battlefield, but he's also a case officer who can work really complicated sort of mind game places with uh, cases with informants. 
He's there to meet him. He's the CIA case officer for Bowie. There's this woman, Jessica, uh, Jennifer Matthews. As you see, there are a lot of women involved in this story. And she's the brand new base chief at Kabul, at the coast rather. And she's a controversial figure to some. She had never been in a war zone prior to September 2009, when she gets assigned to be the chief of base for this station at the, at the sort of the outermost uh, front line of the war on terror. Uh, on the other hand, uh, she has great experience with Al-Qaeda. She knows Al-Qaeda probably better than anyone in the entire agency. She had been trying to warn people about the dangers of bin Laden before 9-11. She was in the building when, when the, you know, at, at Langley when the plane struck the World Towers. And like her colleagues, she spent weeks after weeks not going home, not sleeping, just trying to, to figure out how this happened, who can we, you know, how can we retaliate? And when the CIA began to find important people to, to interrogate, this, uh, the, probably the first high-value person they got was a guy named Abu Zubaydah. She was the one that found him sort of through cyberspace, through her investigations, and that she was sent to the secret prison where the, where the CIA waterboarded this guy to get information out of him. So there's no one more intimate with the fight against al-Qaeda than her. Anyway, these are some of the forces and individuals that come together on the early afternoon of December 2009 to confront this informant that everybody has talked about, and yet no one in America has ever met face to face. He's a mystery to everyone. He's, he's certainly, uh, even his own mind, he's conflicted. In fact, he does, he's even sure that he wants to be a suicide bomber. There's all kinds of evidence in the weeks leading up to the attack that he, he didn't really want to be. And he writes some of his thoughts on paper as he argues with himself, do I really want to do this? He says, am I really going to perform jihad and get myself killed and let my wife remarry and my children become orphans? You know, who's going to take care of my mother and my father? How can I desert or abandon my work that's so important? And then he asks, do I not fear to be cowardly at the last moment and be unable to press the button? Here's the man who's very contemplative about what he's about to do, and yet he decides to do this mission. This is a drama that unfolds in the book, and of course is against this larger drop uh, backdrop of a conflict of, of, of a war that's been now going on longer than World War II and World War, World War I and World War II combined. Eight years of, of effort that seems on the surface to be an incredible mismatch, pitching computers and technology, drones, billions and billions of dollars by our side against a small group of operatives with little technology working in one of the most unwired, backward places on Earth. It's a war that, for our side, has had many tactical victories. We've killed and captured a number of uh, important militants, and yet the number of people who are committed to killing Americans increases, and the whereabouts of the two most important leaders when this event takes place is utterly unknown. We hadn't had a whiff of Osama bin Laden since, 19, since 2002. Now, of course, as we know, bin Laden was finally tracked down, and it's interesting to go back and see that some of these same uh, people, some of the same uh, CIA officers, were involved in this, what seemed like kind of a long shot, looking for this courier who may or may not be visiting Osama bin Laden and sort of figure out where he was, some kind of vehicle he was using. These guys were also following that thread among many others. And it ended up, of course, as we know, in the death of bin Laden. The other, Zawahiri, remains unknown. His location is unknown to this day. And he still runs what is arguably the most uh, important and dangerous terrorist organization in the world. I don't pretend to be able to give all the answers to the big questions about how this war can be fought and won. What I try to do really is tell a story, because I think it's got so much that's of import in this, that it, it, it sheds light on so many different aspects of this war on terrorism, and it's something that I hope you all will just think about and reflect as you read the book, and think about 
not just the challenges of, of this fight, but also the characters, the American intelligence officers who sacrifice so much doing work that is in places that we never see, you know, things that we never hear about. When they're killed, often we don't even know their names. There's a memorial wall at, at the CIA off, uh, headquarters in Langley that has a bunch of stars on it and a book. Some of the stars have names next to them. Some are just stars because the identities of these people are unknown to the rest of us forever, and that's the price they pay. And I hope also that, in fact, I feel certain that you won't be able to forget this, this pivotal character of, of Balui because he's someone who was, who was misunderstood, underestimated, his path was uncertain even to himself, and yet he ultimately represents this disturbing but savvy and sometimes ingenious mind of the enemy that we as a country have to try to confront. And hope you enjoy the book, and if there's any questions, I'd be happy to, to walk through them. Thank you. You said that this story is still officially classified, and I just wondered how the CIA has responded to your revelations. There's a lot about sourcing in this book that it just kind of grieves me that it has to be so opaque. Let me just say that I ended up getting quite a lot of help at many different levels, partly because I was on the trail of the story and I had so much information already. I think there was a concern that we want to make sure that it's, it's accurate, at least. And so to that extent, there was, there were, I, I just will say I had quite a bit of help. And some people, you'll see sort of maddeningly, you'll see sort of whole anecdotes and whole uh, stories with people who are you know, very senior who, who you know, appear to do this and that, say this and that, and yet they're not attributed sources in the book. And this is because of agreements that I had to make in telling this story that, okay, I will, I'll tell this story. This is how it's going to be. I won't name you as a source, and it happened again and again, and that's because of this classified world they all live in. You know, the drone program, everybody knows that there are drones flying over Pakistan and they blow things up almost every week. It is still officially a secret program. The CIA cannot even acknowledge that it takes place. And as a reporter, when you're trying to report on a drone strike, there's this strange little dance you go through. We say, okay, something blew up in Pakistan today. Was anybody killed of interest? And there'd be some hypothetical answer that, well, if something kinetic did happen, we don't think it was a household name. You know, it's just they just can't even say that it happened. So that's kind of the restrictions these, these people are under. And on the other hand, I think to a person, I found this sort of an interest in wanting the story to be told. And it was certainly true on the count and part of the families, even the families in, in Jordan that were afflicted by this, the family of the bomber, they'd love to know what happened. And they were happy to tell me their little parts of it and just together with all these little bits of stories, I was able to, to assemble a narrative that, that held together. Thank you for the question. Yes. And the red shirt. Sorry. In a nutshell, could you sum up how he was turned by Al-Qaeda when he was in the uh, uh, Fatah there? Uh, he, had a, he had a sponsor almost from the beginning. And the story we got, and this is, again, a lot of triangulating that went on. I've got pretty good intelligence sources in Pakistan. I also have two assistants that were working with me, both of journalists who work in Pakistan. One of them works in the tribal areas and actually is on speaking terms with some of the kind of lower level Taliban officials. So I could get questions asked and have, you know, get replies. But in essence, he was able to take up with this fairly important, actually extremely important Taliban figure named Batula Massoud. Massoud was the, was the commander of the, of the Taliban in Pakistan. And he's someone that had been of interest to us for a long time. He was a suspect in the death of, of the, uh, the, the uh, Pakistani Prime Minister Bhutto. He uh, 
if, you know, it's just all kinds of uh, responsibility for all kinds of terrorist attacks inside Pakistan. We ended, we ended up killing him during the course of this story in a very graphic, amazing way, if I say so. Uh, but this was his first sponsor, the first guy that Balawi sort of warms up to. Uh, Masood thinks he's a good guy, actually lets him stay with him, take, makes him part of the family. And so this is sort of the way that he becomes introduced to these other figures. And they're all kind of working together. They all have meetings together. But we, we heard these interesting stories from, uh, from the Taliban about, well, this guy liked him. Masood thought he was a good guy. This other person didn't, thought he was probably a traitor, probably a spy. So some people wouldn't even be in the same room with him. But over time, he was able to convince enough people and, and, and Al-Qaeda and the Taliban that he was sincere that they began to trust him. Yes. Um, the perpetrator was an angry and embittered Palestinian, right? Yes. Numerically and influentially, how important are angry and embittered Palestinians in Al-Qaeda and other organizations that have Tar targeted the United States. There have been some very big prominent ones, and the one that you probably all remember is a guy named Abu Musab Zarqawi, who was the leader of, of uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq. And he was from a neighborhood not too far from this, from where this young man grew up. And he was sort of a hero to, to our guy, Haman Balawi. And when he died, um, his wife tells a story about how uh, Balawi broke down and cried because he just couldn't believe this, this wonderful man who was we know from you know, cutting the heads off of captives on video, this is what he was most known for, but he wept because of the loss of this great sort of Muslim hero. Um, and there are two million Palestinian, I think Palestinians living in Jordan today. They're certainly not all or even most uh, sympathetic with, uh, with the same kinds of issues and causes of Bali, but it's not a tiny minority, that's for sure. It's together. Uh, Joby, uh, on, when the Jordanians first grabbed this guy and kept him for three days, uh, was that, are you confident that was kept from uh, al-Qaeda and from the Taliban? And in other words, they, was anybody aware that the Jordanians had this guy in, in their hands for three days, and uh, which would have uh, led to suspicions that he was, he was indeed a spy? You would think so. And what was intriguing... Of course, the Jordanians were, were kind of aware that that might happen. If he did have contacts, we need to watch this guy very closely to see who he's talking to. And so what they've told me is they watched his every move for weeks. They watched, they monitored his phone calls, his internet connections when they gave him his computer back. They watched where he went. They followed him around. They saw no evidence he was talking to anyone. And so there, there are this, this, the essential belief is that when he went to Pakistan, he went blind knew nobody, but then he sort of made introductions, was able to convince people of his, of it, that he was on their side. But as far as we can tell, this was sort of just a, a black hole. He wasn't talking to anybody. Nobody knew this was going on. Yes? Do we know if he continued to publish blogs following his arrest in Jordan? He did not. He was not allowed to do any more blogging. Um, and he had been, he had this secret identity that, uh, that was well known on the internet, but not nobody knew who he actually was. What he did get to Afghanistan after a few months, after he starts to make his become comfortable with these people, he sort of 
introduced himself as, as I'm Abu Duj, you know, Dujana of Karasani. I'm this big you know, internet star. And he became, wow, this is great. So people actually, there was a, there's an Al-Qaeda magazine, believe it or not. These guys have their own publications. So they sent a reporter to interview him. And that was another great source for me. They did this long sit-down interview and we just asked, well, how about you? What happened to you in Jordan? And, and he sort of gave his whole life story. So that... Uh, so he didn't really blog, but he, he let his, uh, you know, essentially made himself public in that way. And at the very end, um, because this was going to be such a, an important attack, you know, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda went crazy with trying to document everything. They sat him down for interview after interview. They sort of asked him all about his history, all about the things he'd done inside Jordan, all about his, all the things he had written. So was, for me, it was a remarkable resource just from his own mouth to describing all the things that happened to him. And so in that sense, he did continue to produce words that we could uh, then see later, but he wasn't blogging per se. I wanted to ask a question about <clears throat> Masood who's with the you know, Pakistani Taliban, which is itself relatively uh, skilled at targeting, they target Pakistani intelligence and, and uh, Pakistani military installations quite a bit with these sorts of suicide operations. So I'm wondering why that wasn't itself a red flag in the sense that uh, he's hooked up with a group that is known for being able to target uh, at least our quote-unquote allies intelligence assets and yeah. blow themselves up. A couple of things. One is that he, I think there was some happiness that he had managed, if the agency is believing at this point that he's on their side, happiness that he'd he penetrated that inner circle. And I'll tell you one reason why. This is something else that sits in the book that, as far as I know, has never been told anywhere before. But in the, in the spring of 2009, the CIA and the entire intelligence apparatus became very concerned that Massoud had a nuclear device. And that was sort of a term that was picked up in intercepts. And people really dis disregarded it at first because how could this guy, you know, Masood, it's, he's a thug. He's not someone anyone would trust with a bomb. But, you know, how could he get a nuclear device? And they finally decided he probably had a dirty bomb. He'd gotten material maybe from, uh, from nuclear power plants or from, you know, medical waste. And he was going to blow something up. But they were so concerned that the, the Masood clan was so, you know, they were thinking so deeply about how to use this thing. They, they, they went to religious leaders to get cover. Is it okay for us to use this thing? Is it morally appropriate? So it becomes very important from the CIA's point of view to have somebody on the inside to figure out what the, the Taliban gang is up to. It also turns out that there was a period of time that, that uh, Balawi went just radio silence. He disappeared into the, to the, to the uh, Masood's clutches and nobody heard from him for months. And only after he came out in late August, after Masood was killed, suddenly he shows up with all this incredible evidence saying that he's gotten inside Al-Qaeda's inner circle. Good question. Thanks. I think, I think I've exhausted one more. Did he ever actually provide new information, or was he just verifying what the CIA already thought there's actually a difference of opinion about that, and the standard line, or it's probably the, the official line, as close as we can get to that, is that he didn't actually have anyone killed, that his role was more like, and he had a good excuse because he, he couldn't travel on his own. 
he didn't know the territory, so he wasn't exactly like he was going to be able to go around and say, well, you know, here, you know, Joe Terrace is living in this little hovel over here. But what he could do because he was a doctor was he would go to the scene and try to, help, you know, provide medical help when he could. So he was eyes on within minutes, sometimes hours after a strike took place, and to give them blow by blow graphic detail about what they had done. And he would send messages like, good job, you're on the right track, you're really getting close to this guy, you're making them nervous. So he had that kind of encouragement. There are a couple of agency people who have told me that, yes, he did have a couple people was directly responsible for a couple of people being killed, which is remarkable because it means either that these, these low-level folks were just completely sacrificed to prove his credentials, or maybe it was just, just happenstance. But I was told by some people maybe two or three were killed because of his information. Good question. Any other I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings, and thanks for listening.